Hey, what's happening? Hi. How's it going? Hi. Good, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Welcome to History of Haunting. I'm Carrie. And I'm Laura. And we are going to England in our episode today. Yay! Crossing the pond. We don't do enough international locations, I don't think. We should change that. I love doing the international ones. They're I know. Really fun. I know. We should fix I that. I mean, I love to massacre other languages, <laughs> other places besides my home country. Right. I can fuck up words all over. Right. <laughs> words are hard. We I don't say need it to be all the time. To hear. Yes. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, we say it all the time. Words are hard in any language. Um. EVPs, let's just jump right into it. Uh, we are going to Gettysburg next week. Yes. 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 Which is I very exciting for the Gettysburg <laughs> Bash. Yes. Paranormal first convention. First real paranormal convention that we've been attending. And so a lot of our paranormal buddies are going to be there. Chris and Audra, Southern Entities, will be together again. Uh, Anthony mm-hmm. Simonelli is going to be there. He's him and um, Seekers Club of the Paranormal are going to have a vendor booth there. Ron Iacovetti is going to be doing a panel um, and promoting his books. He's put out another book in like three months after the first one came out. And I was like, we don't <laughs> even have like one chapter of our book written. Um, and this fool's pumping out books like <laughs> nobody's business. <laughs> um, Julie Griffin who we investigated Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum with. She's a wonderful spirit photographer. Um, She's going to be there. And um, the live studio audience, my mom, Nancy, she's coming with us. She's she's excited. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really good time. Yeah. Sorry, I've never been to that area or Gettysburg, so I'm really excited to go check out the history. And, of course, all the haunting all the haunting goodness Stuff, so. yeah we need to figure out like our plan miss travel agent and like what we want to see and <laughs> i for sure want to go and tour the jenny wade house because we covered that in our mm-hmm. gettysburg episode um yes so yeah it'll be it'll be a really good time we will bring you guys all of the fun videos and tiktoks and pictures and all kinds of shenanigans we're going to get up to um so we're going to be doing that and then I think that's it. Hoodies, t-shirts, tank oh, tops. Jesus. Oh. Yes. <laughs> All the gear, sweatpants, everything for sale on our website um, shop. Yes. So go ahead and mosey on over there. Yeah. And get yourself some sweet, sweet HOH swag. Please do, guys. We've got the envy so of all much of your stuff. friends. Yes. And we've got so much stuff. T-shirts and women's t-shirts, men's t-shirts, six different colors of everything. Sweatpants are only in three different colors. Um, and they're all the dark colors that Laura requested. <laughs> so you'd better be ordering a pair in every color. Um, I love sweatpants. I live in them. And hoodies. I'm so fucking frumpy in the winter. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> um, well, working from home that's pretty much my uniform so. i mean kind of yeah it's like almost noon one o'clock before i get out of my damn jammies and that's only because <laughs> probably bad. somebody's coming over a grocery delivery or something right. um <clears throat> so yeah we've got that we've got merch uh pre-sale going on through september 30th so go check it out hoahpodcast.com slash shop and gettysburg and we don't have any other investigations booked for the year. Um, USS North Carolina was it. Uh, and what else? But we are going to be having that recap episode coming to you the beginning of September sometime. We're trying to nail down a date with our guest host to be determined. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. I think that's all I have. What all do you right. have? Anything? Sweet. No? Sounds it. Okay. Yeah. All right. All let's right. Go let's, get, let's go. <laughs> let's go to <laughs> England. And we're taking them, Laura, to. Did you figure out how to pronounce this? Because I don't know how. I think it's Raynham Hall. Raynham Hall? Or are we I just could, like I, really putting an American accent on that? We're just winging it. 
<laughs> as as we do on this on this show. But we are going to Random Hall in England. And what are your sources, baby girl? Planarwikipedia.org, randomhall.com, artinthecountryhouse.com. Cool. All right. Great. Let's see. My stream deck All is right. actually working this time. It wasn't working last time, so... <laughs> Thank God. I mean, we're... we don't even know what to do when things actually work. We're like, what the fuck? <laughs> I know. I kind of thrive on chaos and shit being fucked up. <laughs> All right. Tell me about the history right. of this place, because you were telling me a little. You were giving me little snippets that it was intense and complicated. And I'm excited. Well, this place has been around for really quite a while. Um, it is a country house in Norfolk, England. Um that for nearly 400 years has been the seat of the Townsend family. Um, Raynham Hall okay. is one of the most splendid of the great houses of Norfolk. Ooh. Said to be 100 years ahead of its time when it was built, uh, work was started on the hall in 1619 by Sir Roger Townsend. By the time oh. of his death in 1637, it was substantially complete. Um, oh, I have a picture. Not, Rino, it's really pretty. Hang on. Oh, it is really pretty. I don't have the picture. It's the title picture. Dang it. I forgot to make an overlay oh. for the picture, but look at well, it. Look how go. pretty it, it is. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> red brick, um, gorgeous house. So whether or not Raynham Hall was the first of its kind in England, as the genealogist G.E. Cockane um, stated, it was certainly one of the outstanding country houses of the period. Um, perhaps because of the three-year grand tour of Europe um, that Sir Roger had undertaken, accompanied by his mason, William Edge of Raynham. He had his own he mason? In 1620, of course. For 28 weeks, accompanying... Doesn't everybody? I mean... Um, accompanying him in England and out of England, um, Raynham was built in an entirely new style, abandoning native tradition and following the Italian form and plan. Oh. Except for its hipped roof and Dutch gables, Raynham could easily be mistaken for a house built nearly a century later. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. You can see the Dutch influence um, around the top. It looks like the Dutch houses. Oh, okay. um, and then it is red brick. Um, it's beautiful. A century wow. after okay. the hall was completed, designer William Kent transformed the interiors. At the same time, he was creating the lavish rooms at Kensington Palace in London and Houghton Hall in Norfolk. Well, and you know what? Like, red brick became a thing um, when Hampton Court Palace was being built by Cardinal Wolsey that he ended up giving to Henry VIII because Henry VIII loved it so much. And it was in that red brick, um, red and mm -hmm. black brick, actually. He had them painted in this real cool geographic design. So it doesn't really surprise me that he was, this other guy was like, hey... Red brick. I like it. I dig it. Well, let's get into this. Right I know. I know. <laughs> it's uh, copying the king. Well, this does... Right? <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't want to? Uh, so this designer added spectacular plasterwork ceilings, fine paintings, and furniture spanning centuries that were collected by generations um, of one of... Well, now there's one of the most important families in English history. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. These people are legit. So the Townsend family has lived at Raynham now for almost a thousand years. Holy shit. In that area. Um, they are quite a prominent political family. Okay. Um, so the restoration of the monarchy that happened in 1660, it was a pivotal mm. moment for them. Um, Sir Roger's younger brother, Sir Horatio Townsend, was a great favorite of King Charles II. Ah, in okay. 1671, the king and his entourage stayed at Raynham Hall, and Sir Horatio was created um, the first Viscount Townsend of Raynham in 1682. Okay. Um, in the home now, there is what is called the King's Bedroom, which is named for King Charles II when he came to stay. So the second Viscount... Is he the guy... Um, I don't know if you talk about it, but is he the king that got overthrown and beheaded? That king? One of the Charles's um, that happened to. I think this is to. when he came. I think maybe that was the first. I think maybe this is because this is the restoration of the monarchy. Okay, then that must have been Charles the first. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. It's okay. So 
Um, you know I love the British royal family. <laughs> I know you like it's your jam. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second viscount was a renowned agricultural inventor, um, known as Charles Turnip Townsend. Um, he was actually the pioneer of the four-course rotation crop system, which was a driving force of the agricultural revolution and resulted oh, okay. in the large-scale cultivation of turnips across England. Oh, so um, okay. I was like, turnip, huh? That's weird. Go on. But this crop rotation system spread across the world in a way oh. to get more out of your soil. So people still alternate crops today. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, mem- yeah. Members of the family continued to make their mark on the world stage. Um, from the fam- infamous Townsend Acts of Charles Townsend in 1772, which led to the American Revolution, to the naming of the city of Sydney, Australia, after the then British Home Secretary, Thomas Townsend, Lord Sydney. Really? Yeah. Wow, I had, that's pretty cool. I, I never knew that. They were quite influential. Damn, I had, I've never even heard of this family. Yeah, they're, I mean, I hadn't either. And there's so much, um, obviously attributed to them. <laughs> that, right, God. <laughs> they kind of had their hand in a lot of shit here. Kind of, yeah. So, um, by the early decades of the 18th century, the Townsends were already established as among, among the most ambitious aristocratic families in Britain, accruing political power, possessions, and estates at a local and national level. By the late 1780s, the Townsend dynasty had achieved its pinnacle when George Townsend, a professional soldier and politician, was created first Marquis Townsend. Okay. Uh, within a decade... However, the first son, the first of a series of misfortunes occurred when, in 1796, Lord Townsend's son Charles was shot dead by his own brother, who was subsequently declared insane. Oh, During okay. the 19th century, the family was embroiled increasingly in scandal and fell financially on hard times, a demise which led to the Townsend heirloom sale of 1904. Although oh, the wow. financial crisis... Which led to the sale was super common among the British um, aristocracy at the time. Um, the circumstances that led to this sale were kind of extraordinary, very underhanded. And um, I'm going to tell you this story. Cool. I love a good scandal. <laughs> Who doesn't? I, I mean. So upon, <laughs> I mean, come on. So upon the death of George, the first Marquis Townsend in 1807, the title passed to his eldest son, also George, Lord Ferrers, who had also inherited the title of the Earl of Leicester. Um, in 1811, age 58, the second Marquis died suddenly and was succeeded in turn by his elder son, George. Uh, another George. So by this time, that Lord Townsend Three Georges? had been in scandal mm-hmm, following a homosexual affair with his Italian secretary. Oh. As a result, he was disinherited, although he retained his title. So this is the kind of stuff that started to happen. And obviously they kind of fell from grace. Um, so a couple of marquees later, uh, we come to John James Dudley Stewart Townsend. Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Exactly. Cool. So okay. by the time he becomes Viscount, they're broke and heavily mortgaged. Uh, um, so what he does is they had multiple estates at that time. Um, he sold as you off do. the other homes. Yeah. I mean, you collect them, right? I mean, That's a little bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he sought up the other ones and kept Raynham Hall. And that was the only one that they had left. Um, and it was currently rented. And that money was just about all that they ha- he had coming in. Uh, so he obviously really needed some cash. Um, so he ends up selling about 400 pictures. Some have been there for, had been there for generations. Whoa. Um, yeah, it was proposed to sell the most valuable pictures for an estimated 20,000 um, pounds, which would leave about 200 pictures at the hall. So in order to understand the highly personal circumstances surrounding the sale, it is necessary to track back to the early years of John, the sixth Marquis Townsend. Um, his father, also John, I don't know what the deal is with the names. Like the, They, they couldn't come up with anything else. They, They're like, they I like roll it. with it. John, George, whatever. We're sticking mm-hmm. with it. So the fifth Marquis, he was kind of a larger than life figure. He was a noted philanthropist and somewhat eccentric social reformer. Um, although he appeared to have been less interested in his own offspring. 
Um, his son's upbringing was deeply troubled. Um, when he was eight years old, Viscount um, Random's mother ran off with a notorious old philanderer, Lord Edward Tyne. Um, so during his early years, this Viscount um, had spent time at Random Hall and the family's other country residence, Balls Park. Although in later years, when his parents moved to Paris, Random and his younger sister were farmed out to relatives. Um, John was quite small. Like cattle or <laughs> farmed out? <laughs> Basically, like, given to relatives to raise. Great. And dumped off on them. Gotcha. Yeah, All right. Really nice. Cool. Uh-huh. All right. Coy, so you're John, going to live with your aunt and uncle. Right? John was quite <laughs> small and considered mentally frail. Um, as time passed, uh, sometime in the late 1800s, he became w- friends with the Reverend Robbins. Um, who was known as a colorful character. He was also the son of the legendary London art dealer and London, London art dealer and auctioneer, George Henry Robbins. You're doing great. Um, right. Thanks. Uh, during the mid 1890s, uh, the young Viscount became increasingly dependent on the Reverend Rob- Robbins, whom he looked up to for advice and friendship. Robbins entered into an agreement of employment with the Viscount who paid him an annual salary in return for which he supplied his various needs. So between 1897 and 1899, Lord Random's allowances were basically just given um, to Robbins' bank account. They just went straight in. Um, Anybody would like to do that for us, that would be fine too. So yeah, so basically um, this guy just kind of started taking all his money that he had coming in cool um on october 6th of 1899 uh, the fifth marquis died in paris so although Raynham hall was filled with renters he and the reverend moved to the rectory of the nearby church so at this time the lord and robbins and the reverend began to make frequent forays to random hall and in the course of their explorations Robin's interest in the collection was piqued as he became increasingly familiar with the pictures, china, plate, plates, and furnishings. Um, so over the course of this time, the Reverend is obviously working at the, at the church. Sure. Um, he gets shit-canned um, because he has a liaison with a young woman named Frances Ridsdale, whose father was a vicar at the nearby parish of St. Martin's. Good God. So, <laughs> this yeah. is like so this, a soap opera. Oh, yeah. It, 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 it 100% is, and it's going to stay this way through the whole thing. Cool. So Good. now this <laughs> reverend, like, obviously has no money, right? Except for what he's getting from Lord Townsend. Sure. So now he starts concentrating all of his efforts on raising money through selling private items from Lord Townsend's collection. So... You know, stuff from the house. So first, he goes and takes the china and moves it to the rectory and sells it straight out of there for cash. (laughs) (laughs) That was so cute. Uh. Hi, Mom. So, yeah. He's a doll. So, as Lord Townsend himself stated subsequently, he had remonstrated with Robbins about the quantity of China taken away by the dealers, but the reply was that these things were of no use, that they were better sold, and that he must consider others in the matter, meaning Robbins himself, because he's getting money, right? Right. So in addition to organizing and profiting from the sale of items from the Townsend collection, um, Reverend Robbins became embroiled in schemes to find Lord Townsend a wife. So it was with this aim in mind that they organized a trip to America in the spring of 1902, intending to ensnare a wealthy heiress who, in exchange for a title, might inject some much-needed funds into the Townsend coffers. Okay. Subsequent newspaper reports of the trip contained lurid accounts of the Reverend's quest to acquire powers of mesmerism in order to hypnotize Lord Townsend into doing his bidding. Oh my God! Uh, Robbins himself claimed that I know. So <laughs> Robbins himself claimed that he had merely consulted a couple of clairvoyants while in Chicago and in New York, and the so-called mesmerism of which he was accused involved little more than an attempt to provide Lord Townsend with some breathing exercises. Sure, sure. Um. So, um. 
The trip to America proved fruitless. Although on their return to England, Robbins introduced Lord Townsend to an exotic widow named Evelyn Diana Turner Sheffield, to whom Lord Townsend made a formal pr- proposal of marriage in September 1903. Okay, so the Lord proposed marriage in September of 1903. So, however, as was revealed early in 1905, when she took Lord Townsend to court for breach of promise, Mrs. Sheffield, the daughter, the daughter of a Southampton um, publican who had herself um, went to London as a barmaid, was far less exotic or wealthy than she claimed to be. So... <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, same. I mean, you know. Uh, okay. Yeah. So next, uh, the Reverend got himself approved as the executor um, of the estate so that he could get the okay to have the big um, heirloom sale that he wanted to. And he gets the okay from the courts and he proceeds to go to sale um, at Christie's. Oh, wow. All right. So when this. Yeah. So when the sale of pictures had first been flagged up in the press in December of 1903, the Times opined that the greater parts of the collection may be taken to consist of old family portraits, which possess little attraction except to Americans on the lookout for ancestors, and for the most part possess a wooden similarity, which renders them anything but pleasant to live with. (laughs) I just thought that quote was this. Wow. All right. (laughs) That's such a, like... Super funny proper and eloquent slam <laughs> of right. saying this stuff is garbage. <laughs> right. Like nobody it's wants to look at this shit. Ugly and yeah. Um, so, which is exactly how an American would put it. Yeah. This garbage so is ugly. Con- it did concede, however, that it included some important and many highly interesting pictures um, more to more particularly some portraits. Okay. So just prior to the auction, the Times stated the predominant feeling as one looks at this interesting assemblage of historical portraits is one of regret, regret that they are to leave their old home and to be scattered all over the world. At Raynham, okay. they meant a great deal. They were the authentic illustrations of a great historic past of the men of one family who through many generations had done noteworthy services to their country. Okay. Um, by far the most prodigious purchaser of works of art at the Townsend heirloom sales was actually a family member. Uh, the Colonel Charles Bear, Bearers Townsend, these people in their names, I swear. cousin of the sixth Marquis and next in line for the inheritance of the estate. As long so as he Colonel changed Townsend, his name to George or John. Right. Okay. <laughs> George or John. <laughs> or so you don't get Colonel anything. Townsend. <laughs> right. So he was a character in his own right. Okay. Uh, he was born 1861. He was like the sixth Marquis, the great grandson of Lord John Townsend, although his own family's fortunes had suffered a significant decline and his family was em- and his father, I'm sorry, was employed as a railway clerk. Um, Charles was a career soldier. Um, he served with distinction and was regarded generally as a war hero, um, a flamboyant character driven by ruthless ambition and an immense ego. Townsend was also obsessed with his Aristotic. Um, aristocratic lineage oh my god and potential inheritance as he noted ruefully in his diary on a visit to Balls Park in 1895 quote a splendid family like ours and Lord Townsend cannot afford to live at Raynham Hall or at Balls Park to think of it all in the last century there was no family more powerful than ours I wonder if I ever if ever I shall be the means of restoring some of the prestige to the family huh yeah. So fortunately, Colonel Townsend was able to restore some measure of prestige through the financial backing of the fabulously wealthy French banker Count Louis Dracula Cahan Danvers. Oh. Right. Oh, okay. Would that be better? Would that be better? That would be a twist. Right. Uh, <laughs> whose daughter he had married in 1898. So at the time of the auction, Colonel Townsend was actually in India. And it was only on his return home later in the year that he found a telegram from the Count informing him that he had purchased many pictures at the sale, thus saving them for the Townsend family. In total, the Count purchased more than 30 works. Wow. So, in theory, the success of the Townsend Heirlooms auctions um, raised over 40,000 pounds, which should have, like, taken care of the money problems, right? Okay. Um, 
But in reality, um, matters deteriorated significantly on both the personal and financial front. In no small measure, back to our good friend, Reverend Robbins. <laughs> this guy. So in May. I wonder right, if Tony Robbins is some kind of like descendant. Maybe. <laughs> so only two months after the sale, Lord Townsend had an income diminished almost to vanishing point. So he appointed Robbins as his agent for a 10-year term on a vast salary, as well as altering his will in his favor. Why can I not find so, a sucker like this to work for? <laughs> I know. I need to get one. Seriously. I mean. <laughs> so in the spring of 1905, following the failed attempt in court by the widowed ex-barmaid, Mrs. Sheffield, to seek damages, damages against Lord Townsend for a breach of promise of marriage, um, Robbins was instructed to was introduced to a barrister named Thomas Southurst, who was an opportunist blessed with eloquence and persuasive powers. Because good, because we need another one. Yeah. On the pretense of being able to extricate Lord Townsend from his financial problems through a substantial loan, Southurst, who was actually himself heavily in debt, offered the hand of his own daughter, Gladys, in marriage. Although Gladys, then aged 18, was evidently an attractive and talented young woman, the sole interest of both Robbins and Southerst was financial gain. Um, accordingly, on the 9th of August, following a whirlwind courtship, Lord Townsend was marched down the aisle. Um, following a brief honeymoon in Paris, the couple officially set up home. Um, although shortly afterwards, Lord Townsend moved back to Brighton to live with the Reverend and his family. So maybe he was having a relationship with the Reverend because I can think of no possible. other reason. <laughs> so evidently fearing that he would remain under Robin's control indefinitely, Southerst hatched a plot to um, Lord Lord Townsend back to London, where he was placed under lock and key. Whoa! In the uh huh, um, on the grounds that doctors had certified him to be insane. I feel like he would have to be to be putting up with all this bullshit. <laughs> right. So a court hearing was held and he was found unable to take care of his finances, clearly. Mm. But he wasn't insane. Okay. So. I mean, the court could this, find me well, guilty of that, too. For real. Like, don't. Just don't ask. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after this, Lord and Lady Townsend were apparently reconciled. And the formidable Gladys turned her attention towards the pursuit of Mr. Reverend Robbins and his ill-gotten gains. Okay. So in 1908, guided by his wife, Lord Townsend took action in the high court to remove Arthur Robbins as a trustee. And on the grounds of misappropriating um, the heirlooms and obviously a financial misconduct. Right. Um it was ordered that he should be removed and there was an inquiry um, and they wanted to find out like, cause a bunch of stuff had obviously disappeared and all kinds of stuff like with this guy around. Right. Um, so uh, a couple months later, um, Lord Townsend served a bankruptcy notice on Robbins. <laughs> but by that time he had left his residence and his whereabouts were unknown. Um, and in fact, as emigration records reveal, he had already left the country, having boarded the SS Marathon of the Aberdeen Line bound for Melbourne. Ah. So he... Ski fucking daddled. Mm. So Thomas Southers, um, Gladys' father, yeah. um, he kept in close touch with his daughter, but he died age 65 on board the Lusitania. Oh. When on the 7th of May 1915, it was um, sunk by a German torpedo on the way from New York to Liverpool. Do you, you remember the story about that? Yeah. Lusitania. Yeah. Um, I saw that was interesting. Yeah, So the sure. big news, that really has nothing to do with the story. I mean, now we're going to be off. People die fiery deaths. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> he God. He had it coming. He was also kind of a jackass. <laughs> so... <laughs> so the biggest news... Um, however, was a birth of a son and an heir, um, George John. Seriously, now they got both of the names in there. Patrick I Dominic Townsend in May 1916. <sighs> um, no one was more surprised perhaps than the heir presumptive, the Colonel Charles Townsend, who at the time was imprisoned by the Turks, <laughs> something um, of a war hero following a bloody year-long siege. So, And what year was this? Oh, okay. 
1916. So now in 1921, the sixth Marquis, our buddy, he died. Um, I can't keep up. I'm sorry. There's too many Johns and Georges. This is the main guy. All right. Okay. Our guy that can't keep track of his shit. Um, So afterwards, um, his widow moved back to the hall with her son, um, the seventh Marquis, and his younger sister. So three years later, Sir Charles Vera Ferrer's town, Townsend, the colonel. Um, so, no, you know, no lo- he's no longer the heir because this, they had a baby, right? Right, so okay. he died. And he, the pictures that they got at the auction, he ended up leaving to his widow, who ended up selling them Turned around, um, was... off at auction. So they didn't even end up back at the hall. So that's... Oh, my God. So there's still... Um, they sold about 400 paintings. There's still the 200 that was left. Um, of some of the paintings, there was a Van Dyke. There were a lot because they were um, obviously very influential and tied to the royals. Sure. Lots of ones of the royals over the years. Um, okay. Lots of, like, actually pretty cool stuff. So that, wow. unfortunately, is now kind of spread out all over. Okay. Um, they, I mean, still have a lot of amazing stuff at the hall. Um, and the home is currently occupied by the present Lord and Lady Townsend. Um, That's so Raynham crazy. is not generally open to the public, but the present Lord and Lady Townsend have created a restoration fund for individual projects and items in the collection and open the house every year to a series of wonderful recitals in the Marble Hall and for several open days um, in which you can have a tour of the house. Cute. I love it. Yeah. So I'm sure that there are 1,700 more stories about this family um, and probably things to do with the house. But That's cool. All right. I love it. I was wondering if there was any connection between these Townsends and Group Captain Peter Townsend, who was um, Princess Margaret's true love. Um, the queen's sister she and this group captain peter townsend um he was her father george the sixth's like main guy or whatever i don't know his exact title but he worked for very closely with the king and queen elizabeth the second sister fell in love with him they fell in love with each other they wanted to get married but they couldn't because he was divorced and his wife was still his ex-wife was still alive and at the time that was a big no-no. So you kept saying right. Townsend, and I'm like, if she says something about Peter Townsend, I'm going to be like, holy crap! But it doesn't sound like no. There but was it wouldn't any... be too far fetched. It really doesn't seem like people it... have been around, and they yeah. are, um, you know, yeah, aristocrats and such. So it's yeah. very possible. Huh? Wow. That is a so long history. So yeah, that's a very long history. Um, and I'm going to touch on one of those cast of characters in my part. Um, when we, there's so, so many, there's so, so many, uh, we will be right back to you guys. It'll be just the blip of time. We will be right back with the ghost singular of random hall. <laughs> okay. See guys, that didn't take long at all. Uh, on to my sources. They are quick and easy, thelineup.com and curiousarchive.com. So uh, this place is haunted by just one ghost. And I had mentioned uh, that I was going to hearken back to one of the many people that you discussed (laughs) in your part. Um, Yeah. So in September of 1936, and I forget what was going on in Random Hall at the time. (laughs) You were talking about it. I'm sure there was some sort of shenanigans um, with one of the Johns or Georges. Uh, But in September of 1936, uh, a photographer and his assistant visited Random Hall in Norfolk, England, with plans to photograph the estate for Country Life magazine. So the shoot was going really smoothly and they had already snapped the first shot of Raynham's grand staircase and they were preparing for the second shot. 
It was then that the assistant noticed the misty figure descending the steps, the brown lady of Raynham Hall. And you actually didn't mention her in your part. Um, And I'll get into her backstory here in just a sec. But the photographer quickly engaged the flash, resulting... Uh, The resulting photograph, uh, which was published in Country Life and again in the January 4th, 1937 issue of Life magazine, caused a sensation. Paranormal researcher Harry Price interviewed both the photographer and the assistant and declared that the negative was entirely innocent of any faking. So... Visitors to Raynham Hall had long complained of paranormal activity, and now they had proof. The photograph was taken by Indra Shira and Captain Hubert C. Provind. Um, And here is the photograph. I hope I put the right one up. Oh, come on. Now it's... See, now it's not working. (laughs) Son of a... Well... uh... Right. What? Uh, I don't know. There oh, there you go. There, go. there we go. So Shira then recalled the incident in Country Life, um, the uh, uh, corresponding article with the photograph, um, when the haunting uh, photograph was published. Sorry, apparently now it's my turn to have problems with reading and words. <laughs> so he said, <clears throat> quote, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, we came to the oak staircase Captain Provind took one photograph of it while I flashed the light. He was focusing again for another exposure. I was standing by his side, just behind the camera with the flashlight pistol in my hand. I really need to research how photographs were taken in the thirties because this sounds really funny. Um, With the flashlight pistol in my hand, looking directly up the staircase, all at once I detected an ethereal veiled form coming slowly down the stairs. Rather excitedly, I called out sharply, quick, quick, there's something. Are you ready? Yes, the photographer replied, and removed the cap from the lens. I pressed the trigger of the flashlight pistol. After the flash and on closing the shutter, Captain Proven removed the focusing cloth from his head and turning to me said, what's all the excitement about? I directed his attention to the staircase and explained that I had distinctly seen a figure there, transparent so that the steps were visible through the ethereal form, but nevertheless very definite and to me perfectly real. He laughed and said I must have imagined I had seen a ghost, for there was nothing now to be seen. So when the photograph was published, readers instantly connected the figure with the brown lady who had a history of haunting Raynham Hall. But who is the brown lady and why is her spirit supposedly stuck wandering the halls of this Norfolk manor? So according to legend, the brown lady is the ghost of Lady Dorothy Townsend, um, her maiden name being Walpole. She was the sister of Britain's generally first or generally considered first prime minister, Sir Robert Walpole, member of the aristocratic Walpole. (laughs) Thanks, Laura. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Member of the aristocratic Walpole family and aunt of antiquarian and Gothic revivalist Horace Walpole. So Dorothy was born in Norfolk in 1686 and married into the Townsend family sometime before 1713 via your buddy, Charles Turnip Townsend, who was (laughs) widowed a couple of years prior. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the details of her life at Raynham Hall are kind of murky. And due to her connection with the Brown Lady, it's difficult to separate fact from fiction with regard to her actual complete backstory. We do know that she gave birth to at least 11 children and that she lived her married life. I know (laughs) she lived her married life at Raynham Hall. Um, According to some versions of the Brown Lady legend, Dorothy's husband caught her in an affair with Lord Wharton, who was active in the House of Lords and working in opposition to Dorothy's brother, Robert. And so when he found out, when Turnip found out about it he locked her away in a wing of the hall some say the affair occurred before her marriage and then in other stories it occurred during the marriage um but it does seem to be that it was 
generally agreed she actually did have some kind of an affair with this man. Another version claims that Lady Wharton was also involved in her imprisonment, because, of course, he was married. Um, The cause of Dorothy's death is also a contested matter. Some stories say she died of a broken heart after being separated from all of her millions of children uh, when she was imprisoned in Raynham Hall. Another story says her death and funeral were faked by her husband, who filled her empty coffin with bricks while he kept her locked alone in a wing of Raynham Hall. When I read this article, I almost thought it was going to say her, who filled her empty coffin with turnips. <laughs> Which really would have been so much more hysterical. Um, however, when Dorothy died in 1726 at the age of 39, whoa, 11 children before the age of 39? Good God! <laughs> Um, When she died at the age of 39, it was most likely due to smallpox and not the mysterious death that is often attributed to her. Dorothy is buried at East Raynham in Norfolk. So the first apparent sighting of the Brown Lady was at a Christmas gathering in Raynham Hall hosted by Lord Charles Townsend, a descendant of Dorothy's husband, in 1835. Two gentlemen, Colonel Loftus and Hawkins, who were staying at the hall during the celebrations, claimed to see the apparition of a woman in a brown dress on the way to their bedrooms one night. Upon sketching what they saw, a number of guests claimed to have seen the same figure during their stay. Gruesome detail to the account is that the figure had two dark pits on their face instead of eyes. Ugh. Yep. Yeah. Um, now, a second sighting of a slightly more violent caliber occurred sometime during the 19th century by Captain Frederick Marriott. Um, He was a novelist, a pioneer of nautical fiction, and an acquaintance of Charles Dickens. Florence Marriott, the captain's daughter, wrote an account of her father's experience in her book, There Is No Death, in 1891. She recalled the room at Raynham Hall where the brown lady's portrait hung, which showed her wearing a brown satin dress with yellow trimmings and described her as a very harmless, innocent looking young woman. I'm going to try to put her picture up. Uh, May work, may not. Let's see. (laughs) Hey, there you go. So this is her. Obviously, this is not the dress that she's seen in, in, you know, when her apparition is wearing, but or the painting, but this is her. So, however, the innocent-looking woman had been causing quite the stir. So, Frederick was friends with Sir Charles and Lady Townsend, who were living in Raynham Hall at the time, and heard complaints about guests and servants refusing to stay at the hall after encountering this ghost. Frederick requested to stay at Raynham Hall to prove his own theory that the haunting was actually local smugglers. So he was a magistrate and he was aware of the increasing smuggler activity in the area. So um, he believed that they were local smugglers who were trying to frighten the Townsends out of the hall. Frederick chose to occupy the so-called haunted room where the portrait hung. And um, since he was so convinced that it was smugglers and not a ghost, he slept with a loaded revolver under his pillow. So... Obviously, this is going to go well. (laughs) On on the third and final night of his stay, Frederick's visit had been uneventful. There were no appearances of any spirits or smugglers. So two of the baronet's nephews knocked on his door after he had already changed into his nightclothes, and they had asked him to come to their room to show him a new gun that they had ordered from London. So he took his revolver, laughing that it was, quote, in case we meet the brown lady, and followed them into the hallway. Florence, his daughter, in her book, recalls what happened to her father once the three left his bedroom. She writes, quote, The corridor was long and dark, for the lights had been extinguished. But as they reached the middle of it, they saw the glimmer of a lamp coming towards them from the other end. One of the ladies going to visit the nurseries, whispered the young Townsends to my father. Now the bedroom doors in that corridor faced each other, and each room had a double door with a space between. 
as is the case in many old-fashioned country houses. My father, as I have said, was in a shirt and trousers only, and his native modesty made him feel uncomfortable, so he slipped within one of the outer doors, his friends following his example, in order to conceal himself until the lady should have passed by. I have heard him describe how he watched her approaching nearer and nearer through the chink of the door until as she was close enough for him to distinguish the color, the colors and style of her costume, he recognized the figure as a facsimile of the portrait of the brown lady. He had his finger on the trigger of his revolver and was about to demand its stop and give the reason for its presence there when the figure halted of its own accord before the door behind which he stood and holding the lighted lamp she carried to her features, grinned in a malicious and diabolical diabolical <laughs> manner at him. Sorry, guys. Um, this act so infuriated my father, who was anything but landlike in disposition, that he sprang into the corridor with a bound and discharged the revolver right in her face. The figure instantly disappeared, the figure at which for the space of several minutes, three men had been looking at together, and the bullet passed through the outer door of the room on the opposite side of the corridor, and it lodged itself in the panel of the inner one. My father never attempted again to interfere with the blonde lady of Raynham, and I have heard she haunted the premises, she haunts the premises to this day. That she did so at that time, however, there is no shadow of doubt. So, yeah. Um, In 1926, Lady Townsend's own son had a run-in with the brown lady. Um, And it, again, another chilling twist to all of these different sightings. Soon after encountering the spirit, he grew doubly upset when he saw the portrait of Dorothy Walpole that hung in the house and claimed it was the same woman he had seen in the hallway. And this is almost 200 years after she died. So... Yeah. So the current Townsend family living in Raynham Hall believe that Dorothy continues to walk the corridors of the estate today. However, they don't believe that Provend and Shear's photograph is real. When discussing the haunting, Lord Charles Raynham, the son of the present Marquise Townsend of Raynham, told the BBC, quote, she isn't there to haunt the house, but she is still there. I know she's there and I'm glad she's around. So it's certainly not the same reaction of fear experienced by Colonel Loftus, Hawkins, and Captain Frederick, but whether or not the current Townsend family believes their house to be haunted doesn't apply validity to Proven and Shira's ghostly photograph that they, that has become famous. Um, To add a bit of a disappointing end to this story, the general consensus today is that the famous photograph of the brown lady is a fake. Um, so I'm going to show it again, just so we can kind of look at it as I read this next part. Okay. So looking at it through modern eyes, I'm sure we can all understand why this is the case. So at the time the famous photograph was taken, the brown lady was likely a well-known ghost story. And what better way is there to capitalize on a local legend than faking a photograph of the so-called ghost, right? It certainly earned these two the attention they might have been seeking when they set out to photograph Raynham Hall for Country Life magazine. So despite Harry Price's affirmation that the negative of the photograph is entirely innocent of any faking, others aren't as convinced. An investigation of the photo done by London's Society for Psychical Research one year later in 1937 believed the specter was the result of the camera being shaken during a six second exposure. Another theory is that the photographer smeared grease on the camera lens to get the spooky effect, or that the image is the result of one photograph being superimposed over another. So others have mentioned the suspicious similarities between the image of the brown lady and carved statues of the Virgin Mary, possibly used in the creation of the image. But however it was created, Provend and Shear's Country Life photograph stirred an interesting conversation on the validity of ghost photography and how these convincing images were created over 50 years before modern technology. So, Laura, looking at it, 
what are your thoughts? Like, I immediately do think, like, it does look like a statue of the Virgin Mary, you know? Um, I agree. Since it's, I mean, you see the picture, you see the staircase Mm -hmm. um, straight on. And then just like, it looks like a mist, but that, yeah, like has some depth to it. Yeah. Um, and it very easily, yeah, could be like a statue. It could, with the long exposures that they had back then, I mean, it could really be anything. Yeah. It's it's not like, you know, photography, it was so new, you know? Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I... even if they weren't trying to fake it and it like came out later or, you know, maybe they saw that later and they were like, oh, maybe it's the ghost. And really it could just right. be a, a weird light effect. And then they decided to take advantage of it. it um, I mean, it yeah. could be at, at this point, just about anything. Um, yeah. And I think if there were like grease smeared on the lens, like I feel like that would have had to have taken some time to do because this does have a human shape to it. Um, And for them to have done it exactly like, right. I I don't, I don't necessarily think that it might be grease on the lens because I feel like then that would have affected like the surrounding area. I mean, it's just too precise of a human form really. Yeah. For it to be the time to almost like paint it on there. Right. Very carefully. I mean, they could have, yeah, um, so I don't know. It's, you know, uh, it, I, I think sometimes we sometimes fall victim to the trap of it's old and it's creepy, so it must be real, you know? Um, mm-hmm. but people were faking ghost photographs long before these two individuals, most notably with mediums regurgitating ectoplasm during Victorian era seances. And you cover that. We, we mm-hmm. Our very first YouTube episode, Spiritualism in the Ouija Board, you talk about that. You right. know? I mean, they even did it to Mrs. Lincoln. Yes. Yes. So, There's all that mm-hmm. fake stuff, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, coincidentally, um, the Society for Psycho- Psychical Research also exposed a number of fraudulent ectoplasm regurgitating mediums. So, it's safe to say that during the time when ghost stories and seances were much, very much still in vogue, um, this society was rightfully on the lookout for supernatural hoaxes. Um, spirit photography is real. Um, there have been a number of times, Laura, that we've been on investigations where people have captured weird anomalies in their photographs. Um, right. Emma, for starters, my niece, mm-hmm. said Trans-Allegheny. Um, Our friend Julie Griffin, who we're going to go to Gettysburg with and hang out with, we want to have her on the show. It's just we need to figure out a time for us and for her. She's already agreed to be on it. She's a very renowned spirit photographer. So I certainly do want to talk to her about this particular photograph and kind of get her, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, thoughts on it. But I, I just... I don't know. I tend to think that maybe it is just uh, an embellished story simply because she's the mm-hmm. only one of all the drama that happened <laughs> in that house with that family for a thousand years. Just the one ghost. I don't, I don't, I, I mean, I'm, it's possible. It's possible. Um, well, they could attribute any activity to her too. I mean, if that's true, they, if there's so right, be- if they're, dead set on it being the brown lady. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, at the end of the day, Dorothy Walpole would probably find it surprising that her name lives on centuries later in the form of a ghastly spirit wandering the halls of her former home. Uh, whether the photograph is real or a hoax, it certainly does make for an entertaining ghost story. Um, especially the guy that's shooting at ghosts. And all. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> like halt. Right. (laughs) Seriously. Um, Raynham Hall remains in the hands of the Townsend family to this day, like you mentioned. And the current Marquess is married and has two children. And since the current Townsends don't mind her presence, hopefully Dorothy's spirit is haunting happily from the afterlife inside the beautiful Raynham Hall. So that's all I've got for the hauntings, because like I said, it's just this one, this one lady and... 
you know, who knows? But I'm really, really looking forward to having Julie on the show now just to kind of be like, all right, talk to me about this photograph. What do you think? And you know that she's done, you know that she's had to have done research and stuff on like photograph, like the way photography was way back in, you know, 1936 Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, So, yeah. No, I don't know, though. I um, me, the the diehard believer in the paranormal. I'm kind of skeptical that this is real. I think I don't think there's a haunting. Right, I don't if you're think... skeptical. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just um, I don't know. I just I'm not I'm not feeling this one. But it is like mm-hmm. I said, it certainly is an interesting story to talk about and to share and and discuss you know and absolutely and that family has had such a mark in history kind of as i touched on and then right um so much stuff is is, has happened there and it's just a very interesting Mm -hmm. place i think anyway yeah for sure i agree um so yeah that's what i have on um the brown lady of raynham hall and uh yeah that's that's it. I don't. There's really no other. No. That's, that's really all I got. That's really all I got. Um, but guys, let's uh, <laughs> jump right into. We're just bebopping right through this episode, Laura. Let's jump right into strange um, history. Hang on, I just opened the book to find a story. Since you and I are having such a hard time with words tonight, um, we are going to talk about two illegal word origins. And I should have put my readers on. Hang on, guys. Um, (laughs) And this is why we can't read the stories. Even though our fonts... I'm going to blame it on that. We can't read... We can't see the words. We can't see the words, even though our fonts are really huge. Um, Okay, so in 1849, a criminal named William Thompson would walk up to strangers in New York City and after making friends with them, ask, have you confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow? (laughs) Okay. What? Yeah. Um, If they said yes, Thompson would gratefully borrow the watch and then keep it. When he was caught, the prosecutors referred to him as a confidence man. That didn't fit on headlines, so the newspapers shortened it to con man. Oh, that's kind of funny. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Well, I I, knew it came from confidence, but I didn't know. No, like that was was the story. Yeah. So another um, trickster in the 1840s New York was Alec Hogue. He used prostitutes to lure men into hotel rooms. When the men's clothes were on the floor, Hogue lifted money from the pockets via a hole in the wall. He was known for his ability to stay one step ahead of police and brag about it all over the city. The nickname cops gave to Hogue survives as a slang term. (laughs) Oh, God survives as a slang term used to describe an intelligent cocky person as a smart aleck oh that's funny right all right hey yeah yeah We're so going today. i'll tell you what um and then here at the bottom and i don't think it explains it now uh six things invented by accident velcro the slinky the microwave oven super glue teflon and the x-ray machine <laughs> so all good stuff all good stuff all good stuff um so yeah that is strange history for us guys and if you guys have a strange history story that you'd like us to share send it to us at hohpodcast at gmail.com or message us on instagram or facebook and we will read it live on air or recorded on air <laughs> we'll read it send it to us if you have one that you think is really cool um to that end that's all we have for this week's show and laura why don't you tell everybody where they can follow us since everybody wants to you can follow us on instagram facebook and twitter at hoh podcast and, and on the tiktok at HOH Podcast, at HOH Carrie, and at HOH Coast Laura. Yay! 
All right, guys, that is it for us. We will see you next week with a brand new location. And I swear to God, it's totally my fault that we didn't have a snack size episode this last Monday because I didn't upload it. I got it already and put it. I just it's saved as a draft. And I'm sorry, we'll get it to you this week and we will get back on track. Um, To that end, stay safe out there because you never know who or what. Or what little child is sneaking into your recording studio (laughs) and is listening. Yep. (laughs) Bye, guys. (laughs) Bye.